Welcome to Writing It, a podcast by Ed Adams. The Triangle. Dirty Money, Here's How to Clean It. Episode 1. A novel by Ed Adams. Part 1. Art for Art's Sake. The White Cube's sterile tranquillity gave no clue of the impending violence. Lucian took the programme for this Sloan Square gallery to orient himself. The White Room's serially displayed cutting-edge art. It was very different from the place he'd visited the last time he'd received private tickets. That had been a rather grim gallery, the size and appearance of a newsagent's somewhere out west. Graffiti art, decomposing artefacts on the floor, and rats running free as part of the installation. Not this time. It was clean pictures on clean walls in a gallery which Lucian had pretty much to himself. He looked towards the white space between the hanging pictures. Pristine. Then he noticed it from the corner of his eye. A fragile red line was arcing across the wall. A second line appeared as he looked at it. Then he felt it. The knife had done serious damage. Then he felt nothing. Outside, November graphite skies, gentle rain. A quiet, smartly dressed woman slowly left the gallery, flicked her umbrella up and walked across to a modern metallic BMW. The driver clicked the locks, she climbed into the back seat and the vehicle slipped into the heavy traffic. Hours later, across town, Jake Lambers was walking to the pub. He'd had a tough day. The boss had torn him off a strip about the expenses from his recent trip to Liverpool. He'd been trying to get an exclusive with a singer who was supposed to be seeing a footballer. It would have made an excellent insider piece, but the trip was doomed because he'd received incorrect information. Instead, he'd made the best of a lousy job in a lively city with a great nightlife. The expenses had only just arrived, and upon reflection seemed excessive, mainly because there was no story. So now he was going to meet Bigsy and Claire to drown his sorrows. The pub in Westminster was buzzing. There were no tables and pretty much a mob standing by the bar. It was early evening and the local offices had tipped out into the neighbourhood and the inevitable one-before-the-train ritual was in full flood. Jake, Jake, here, called Bigsy, whose real name was Dave, but had adopted Bigsy on account of his size and didn't mind this affectionate but somewhat politically incorrect nickname. Bigsy had commandeered a prime corner spot at the bar and standing with him was Claire, they were well into their second drinks of the early evening. Bigsy had spotted Jake the moment he'd entered the bar in customary journalist, semi-smart clothing, dark jacket and an open-necked white shirt. Can dress it up or dress it down, Jake had once explained. Bigsy was pleased to see Jake. He, Claire and Jake were the nuclei of a gang of friends who often met and attended many social functions together. Let's go to the Crown, said Bigsy. This place is heaving. As he spoke, Jake's phone rang. He knew it rang because it vibrated. You couldn't, you couldn't hear the phone above the pub noise. Just a minute, called Jake, as he reversed out of the side door of the pub, back into the busy street near Westminster Tube. Only then did he note the number. Mark, one of his other drinking buddies. Jake, it's Mark. Have you heard already? We've just been called about Lucien. He's been killed at an art gallery. Heavy traffic was passing, mainly a stream of buses and taxis. Jake couldn't take in this conversation. Was he hearing it badly because of the traffic, or was it a wind-up? Mark, are you pissed? This doesn't make sense. Mark repeated what he had said previously. 
To Jake, it felt like one of those occasions where he'd had to sober up suddenly when something big was about to go down after chucking out time, except this time he wasn't drunk. Jake started to take that in. What he was hearing was true. Lucian had been murdered. Lucian, who had been with a few days previously. Jake watched as Claire backed out of the pub, pushing the door slowly with her hip, while still holding a glass of something. She caught Jake's eye and waited a few steps away from him. "'Jake, what is it? You look in shock,' she said in a teasing voice, wagging a finger of her spare hand towards him because he'd only just arrived and then left for a cell phone. Jake noticed her expression change and she became aware that Jake was looking unusually grave. Jake continued the conversation with Mark for a few minutes longer and could see Claire listening and piecing together the fragments she could hear of the conversation. As he hung up, he looked towards Claire to begin to tell her. I think I heard most of it, she started to say. Jake knew Claire was smart and that she would very likely have figured out what had happened, even from only hearing part of one side of the conversation. I'll get Bigsy, she continued. You can tell us both together. Claire strode back into the pub and a few moments later, the three of them were standing together on the pavement as Jake relayed the news from Mark about Lucien's murder. Jake said he'd agreed to go visit Mark to get further information. Well, let's go, said Bigsy. Detective Inspector Truman had walked into what he knew was a professional hit. This crime scene wasn't casual violence, it was a clinically executed assassination. There was no weapon to see, but the precision of the knife was medical. To his surprise, Truman had found himself thinking that the red arcs across the wall almost looked like part of the art installation. Radios crackled, police forensics operated, cameras whined. They used to click, he thought, but now they've gone digital, you hear the flash recharging more than the whirring sounds from the old motor drives. There was a blue and white police tape, a lot of it. The white cube now looked messy, distorted and unclean. What is the story? asked Truman of the medical examiner, checking the sprawled body. Quick version, replied the medic. This was professional, fast, but with a lot of deliberate blood spill. Someone wanted this to get someone else very annoyed. I can tell you the usual things about the height and weight of the assassin. Probably a woman, by the way, but this looks like something from martial arts. Truman's assistant was Sergeant Andy Green. They had worked together for around three years and knew how each other operated. Truman gestured to Green. And what do we know about the victim? Green began to search the body. A uh, recent suit from Marks and Spencer. M&S tie, too. This could all be a matching set. From one blooded pocket, he pulled out a driving licence. Lucien Deschamps lives in Hampstead, he read from the card. Normal bank cards, nothing special. There's an Oyster card in here, too, so he's probably a regular commuter. Seems to work in a corporate travel group, according to this business card. Quite honestly, there's nothing out of the ordinary. The processing continued, and Truman called his station. We're coming in, he said. We need to get some sense around this situation. A lot of people know about this already. What with this being a press day at the gallery? It is impossible to stop the general news getting out, but I want us to keep anything else we find under wraps for a few more hours. If this is a serious crime, we need to decide how we want to release any findings. Truman looked across to Green and gestured with his eyes. Let's go, he called, and Green nodded back in agreement. Green was a modern law enforcer. DNA, CCTV, profiling, all part of the contemporary way. Truman was more traditional. Though respectful of modern techniques, he'd been through the various modernisation courses along the way, but still had a strong belief in basic policing methods. They made a good team because although they complemented one another in the way that they thought about cases. 
By the time they reached the nearby Chelsea police station, Truman had already called to obtain a search of police files for anything on Deschamps, as well as basic inquiries with his employer and some general bank statements and phone bills. Nothing showed circumstances out of the ordinary. There didn't appear to be anything special about the victim. So was the assassin clever at covering tracks, queried Green? Or did the professional get the wrong person, he suggested. I think we can rule out random violence, responded Truman. This was done by a cold-blooded professional killer, almost certainly a hit for someone. Maybe there was someone else in the gallery who was the real target, or perhaps it is linked with the exhibition or owners, ventured Green. Truman knew these were long shots or mere guesses because most times a professional hitman would stake a victim for some time before making their move, unless this was a request for a sudden and violent action by someone as yet unknown. Truman's time in the force meant he'd come across some strange and twisted behaviours and much violence, but this one was giving him a powerful sensation which almost felt like personal danger. Truman and Green had looked through the records for who had appeared for this private viewing, the irony was that it was not even the main private viewing. The day was to get the artwork arranged and to invite the press to preview before the main event started. It meant that there was hardly anyone at the gallery. Attendees were spinning through fast for impressions to write in their chosen media. The exhibiting artist was tucked away in a suite at the Dorchester like a film star handling successive repetitive interviews. The razzmatazz of the exhibition was planned to start on Wednesday, some two days after the bloody incident, except now there had been a block put on the start by police. A gallery filled with blue and white tape, police officers and the aftermath of serious crime didn't make for a good show, unless it was some sort of warped installation piece. (laughs) 